Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. As Vice President for Network Programming, I'm really excited about our fall season. Now, just to get the suspense out of the way, Battle Toads of Buffalo is coming back. It's been renewed. It's okay to applaud, I'm pretty sure. Question over here. Isn't this the series where there was one episode that nobody in America watched? Episode 6. Yes. Nobody watched it. What was so terrible about it? I don't know. I didn't watch it. Nobody watched it. I just said that. Why would you renew a series like that? Because we're not defined by the Nielsen ratings. The Nielsens are just one part of how we think about our programming. What are the other parts? I'm not sure. Artistic credibility? Also, we spend a lot of money on those Toad costumes. I think Battletoad will do better this fall with a different lead-in. Our new game show, Put the Bunny Back in the Box. Is that the one where contestants get shot if they don't follow the rules? They get winged. It's all soft tissue wounds. Nobody dies. Everybody signs a waiver. What do you mean, it's all soft tissue damage? No, I said soft tissue wounds. Soft tissue damage is our new Tuesday night legal medical thriller about a wife who works on a trauma unit and a husband who's a personal injury lawyer. It seems that, once again, your network's programming will be a paradoxical mix of formulaic, repetitious, bizarre, and grotesque. Who leaked our new slogan to you? No time for that. Time for the scramble with one of your colleagues, Eric Deggins. Also an update on the Michael Sam story, hitting good, kissing bad, and a new state poll on guns, Kino, and marijuana. And now he plays Aunt Dixie on the CW Network series, Guns, Kino, and Marijuana, Colin McEnroe. Well, little Luke, you, y'all better put down that gun and stop smoking marijuana and go play some Kino. I haven't really memorized all my lines for this week's episode, but it's something along those lines. All right, yes, today on The Scramble, we're going to talk in just a second to Eric Diggins, NPR's first ever full-time TV critic. We've talked to Eric many times times before. We always enjoy him. Um, And since we're talking to Eric, this is a good occasion for me to not exactly apologize, but uh, it turns out that a number of people's sensibilities were somewhat wounded or abraded by Friday's uh, nose panel where we were talking about the fact that the kinds of shows that get discussed uh, among the intelligentsia, the TV cognoscenti, uh, shows like Breaking Bad and and Mad Men and Game of Thrones and uh, I could go on. These are actually not the shows that people watch, or at least they're watched in so much smaller numbers uh, than compared to NCIS or CSI or... Uh, you know, those these kinds of network shows that have 15 million viewers. So anyway, it sounded to some people like we were disparaging shows like that. And I, I, I guess maybe we did a little bit. But I, but I think our main point was that it's important to stay in touch with shows that people actually do care about in huge droves. So it's very appropriate today that we should be turning where we're turning right now because Eric Deggins is joining us right now. And uh, much of Eric's attention uh, this week will be taken up with a TV agrarian ritual called the upfronts, uh, where the crop is introduced uh, with a promise to harvest it in the fall. Uh, So, uh, Eric Deggins, welcome back to our show. Thanks for having me. And so explain uh, better than I just did what the upfronts are. 
Yeah, no, I've never heard it referred to as an agrarian exercise. <laughs> I love that. Basically, um, what the TV networks do is they um, present their fall schedules to all the big advertising muckety-mucks in uh, New York City uh, during a week in May. And they call it the upfronts because the goal is to um, tell them what they're – tell everybody who buys advertising uh, from the TV outlets uh, what they're going to have over the next – um, TV season, which runs from September uh, to May, and try to sell them advertising space before the season even starts. Um, the idea is to go to them and say, hey, we have a great new series you know, starring Alfre Woodard, or we have a great new series with Katherine Heigl, or we have a great new series uh, that's focused on you know, a remake of the British series Broadchurch. Um, and if you buy ad time now, you get it at a discount, and uh, you're one of the first people on the ground floor, so to speak. Uh, but what it does for those of us who watch television and, and monitor television is it gives us a report card on how uh, the TV season went because we see all the shows. Everybody is sort of officially canceled. You know, there's some shows where you didn't necessarily know what was going to happen. You had the sense they were going to get canceled. Robin Williams' comedy, The Crazy Ones, is a good example. Uh, it didn't seem to perform that well. It got replaced by another show in, in April. There was a sense it was going to be canceled, but CBS didn't really officially say it was canceled uh, until this week. And so we get that final re report card on what survived and what didn't. And then we also get a look at uh, what the networks are going to do for the next TV season, what their sense is of where the broadcast networks are headed, how they compete, uh, with each other, and what kind of changes we can see in shows like uh, dramas, in uh, reality television, in diversity amongst casting and people who work behind the scenes. All of these questions are going to be answered this week as we see what shows get picked up and what shows get canceled. Um, and uh, NBC and Fox is today. NBC announced their schedule officially in New York at 11 a.m. Fox will do it at 4 p.m. Uh, ABC's uh, tomorrow. CBS is Wednesday. And the CW is, is Thursday. So I want to talk specifically about some of the content that is going to be introduced. But before we do that, it does seem as though there's something a little vestigial about this whole process. I mean, we're, we're talking about the five network content providers that you, you just named, you know, in, in fact, a, a landscape that's just much more complicated in terms of who the players are. And, and it almost does hark back to, you know, the, the television cycle that we did grow up on where uh, TV series were introduced or had their season premiere in the fall and then they ran up, up until the late spring and then summer repeats came on and, and, and summer replacement series. And now kind of everything happens all kinds of different times and the series are introduced at various times. And I mean, there's been quite a bit of disruption, to use the, the fashionable term, of that old understanding about how things were. So how much sense does it make to be having the conversation the networks are having right now? Well, I mean, it's funny because you, you sort of, before we started talking, you made the point that uh, we spend a lot of time talking about series that don't get nearly get the kind of viewership that big popular series like NCIS and uh, Big Bang Theory um, actually get. And so I, I think in a way you just sort of restated the same mm -hmm. issue. I mean, there's a lot of disruption going on for sure. Uh, but the big broadcast networks still have the largest audience in television, and it's still a $9 billion a year business, and it still fuels these major corporations like 20th Century Fox and NBC Universal and Disney, uh, you know, all of these companies, News Corp., all of these companies uh, get major slices of their revenue 
from television and specifically from broadcast television. So what we're seeing now is an effort by the broadcasters to meet this new reality that you're talking about. Fox is a good example. They're trying very hard to be um, a, a, a 12 month a year network which is kind of difficult to do because the old way of making money in television was built upon you made you know 22 to 25 episodes of a show um, you you made money when you aired it again when you aired a, a rerun uh, you went into reruns over the summer so that the the industry had a chance to recharge and you know figure out what the new shows were going to be and cancel the old ones and you know all of that is out the window now there's so much competition uh... that fox is trying very hard to constantly have new material on they just debuted their reboot of twenty four um, just a, a week ago uh, and it's going to run well into the summer um, cbs has a, a series with holly berry that's going to do the same thing it'll debut in summer and run over the summer so everybody's trying to figure out how to uh, meet this new challenge uh, without uh, destroying their economic model. And so that's, again, why the upfronts are so uh, important to take, to, to take a look at, because that gives you a sense of how the biggest players in television are dealing with the fact that there's a million little competitors out there, um, you know, aimed at, at, at eating their lunch. The... Um... And, and you know, an example that you just cited of how broken the old paradigm is, is that 24, a series that was designed to run 24 episodes, that's why it's called 24. It's a 24-hour day. Each part, each episode is one hour in real time. It's not running 24 episodes, even though, I mean, if any show should, you'd think that one would be. Well, I think it's also a recognition that, um, A, it's hard to write 24 episodes of great television. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's especially hard to write 24 episodes of great television in the amount of time that you have uh, when you're doing it for a conventional TV season. And so you're, you're bound to have episodes in the middle that, are, that you're running in place, they're not quite as good, you know, whatever. So, so the idea is, you know, you're covering 24 hours, but you're picking the best 12 hours out of that 24 hours and you're showing that in real time. And frankly, in a, in a weird way, it makes more sense. You know, as a viewer, you're watching 24 and you're thinking to yourself, if you're, if you're a nerd like me, you're thinking to yourself, these people never go to the bathroom, they never take showers, they never eat a meal. You know, they, it, they, they, uh, a car, there's never a car ride that takes longer than two minutes. I mean, it's just, there's so much about the, the setup that if you think about it for more than a minute or two, it just doesn't make any sense. So if, if you have a setup where you're, you're, showing, uh, you're covering 24 hours, but you're only showing 12, then in a weird way, that makes a lot more sense than the way they did the show uh, for, for uh, eight seasons uh, before uh, it left the regular, um, Fox's regular schedule. Right. Now you know when they made the tuna fish sandwich in one of the periods that they weren't showing you. So, um, <laughs> so you know, Eric, uh, reading all, the, all of your coverage, reading as much other stuff as I could get my hands on, you know, I don't study this the way that you do, but it does seem as though the networks do have kind of network-specific personalities, not personalities that are absolutely universally ironclad, you know, true for every single endeavor that each network does. But, I mean, looking at CBS, I, I, I would say, you know, that CBS's motto could be kind of 
surprise us, but not too much, really. You know, <laughs> Matthew Perry, Patricia Arquette, Scott Bakula, Tia Leone, Catherine McPhee, names you know, franchises you know, various ways that the letters N, C, I, and S can be combined and, and with a colon added to them, uh, a revival of the odd couple. I mean, CBS is kind of saying, well, you know, we don't have a lot of really drastically new ideas or new faces for you, but you seem to like this kind of stuff a lot. <laughs> well, what what I would say is that um, I, one of the things what I tell college students, and you know, when I speak at colleges and stuff, is that uh, if you want to understand ninety five percent of what happens in television, you just got to understand two things: who's making money and who's losing money. Mm-hmm. Right? It's all about money, and so every network's personality, as you call it, comes from their target audience. Who do they make the most money on? So CBS's target audience is the most traditional TV viewer. So you're going to see the most traditional TV shows in what they're doing. And CBS's um, challenge, and one that I think they have met pretty well, to be honest, in the last few years especially, is to um, try to reinvent um, these police dramas and comedies and reality shows in ways that are not too surprising, as you say, uh, but are different enough that they feel um, that they feel fresh, and that there's something that people might be excited about seeing. So, if you look at Elementary, their their revamp of the Sherlock Holmes uh, mysteries, it, at its core, it is a typical sort of CBS crime mystery show. Uh, but they've managed to take um, a new reading of Sherlock Holmes and a new reading of Watson, two very complex, interesting characters, and weave them within every storyline in a way that makes the show feel different and fresh, even though at its core it's a very conventional uh, mystery show, often a murder mystery. So that's CBS's um, personality. ABC is female-driven because its biggest hits uh, are shows that, uh, appeal to women. Dancing, Dancing with the Stars, Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, uh, Revenge, you know, all of those soap opera-y kind of dramas have found a, a, a home on ABC. Although so, I think ABC also seems to be trying to ride the current demographic wave, too. You know, with a, fam- a show like Modern Family, there's a lot of you know signposts in there about where the whole country is going. You look at the shows that they're introducing. They have a show called Cristela, which seems to be about a Mexican-American family. They have a show called Fresh Off the Boat. I mean, what could be more of a telegraph there? This is about an Asian-American family. Uh, I think you mentioned Viola Davis. She has a, a series on ABC. It seems right. to me more than any other network, they're sort of saying, hey, we realize the demographics are changing, the country's changing, we can't give you Mark Harmon uh, five nights a week, we need to actually program some stuff that really, as they say, looks like America. Well, what I would say is, uh, I think every network is doing its version of that. They have finally realized that diversity is important, and it's something that can't be uh, something they pay attention to only occasionally, that every time they step up with new shows, some of those new shows have to be focused on non-white characters. And, and I think we've seen, um, uh, this, this fall feels like there are going to be more shows about people of color uh, in starring roles than we've seen in a, in a long time, and you, you mentioned some of them. But uh, on ABC, to get back to its personality, uh, I also think that, that in my own experience, and I spent a lot of time talking about diversity in media and society, um, you know, that's a subject that women are more open to. And so it makes sense, in a way, that ABC would be a network that would have a lot of shows featuring diversity uh, because 
their target audience is open to seeing that in a way that maybe other target audiences wouldn't be as open to. Now, Fox is about uh, young viewers and about edgy viewers and about male viewers. So, um, you know, last year we saw a, a fair amount of science fiction. We saw an edgy, you know, um, um, a, an edgy comedy, a sitcom about, you know, um, millennial guys having to do, or just uh, just older than millennial guys having to deal with their dads. Um, from Seth MacFarlane, and so um, so that's their personality based on their target demographic. And then M- NBC is kind of in the in the middle of a lot of these uh, because it is struggling to reinvent itself, and mostly it's reinvented itself with football, which everybody watches, and The Voice, which is also a hit that draws a wide, broad-based audience. So they don't necessarily have um, you know a, a pinpoint. Uh, target audience that's as specific as we've seen in these other networks because they're trying really hard to figure out how to take the success of football and the voice and broaden it out to their other shows. Although we should say Thursday Night Football is flipping over to CBS. Um, they have Sunday Night Football. They have Sunday Night Football. And NBC has Sunday Night Football, which is a, tr- a tremendous ratings uh, gainer for them. It's, it does seem with NBC, I mean, I, once again, I don't follow this stuff all that closely, but when I started following it, the other thing that I sort of thought was, wow, everything that I would be potentially interested in seems something seems like something they're a little bit scared to try. They're not throwing it out there in the fall. They're going to wait for something else to fail and then reintroduce it. So there's a, uh, a Tina Fey thing. Who doesn't want to see the next Tina Fey project? Not starring Tina Fey, but still and as an originator. Who doesn't want to see something by Tina Fey? That's not green-lighted for the fall. There's a David Duchovny thing about a Charles Manson chaser or something like that. Uh, that you know, that sounds like something I would probably probably watch a few episodes of that's right. not ready to go either it seems like they're maybe a little bit more afraid of some of the edgy creative stuff that or, or maybe i'm just not their target demo that's probably the case no what it is is uh the one piece of information you don't have is how the tv season plays out right mm-hmm. so if you start a show in the fall then you have a period at the end of november and throughout december where you 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 can't run new episodes basically mm-hmm. um people you know as the as the the christmas season approaches people watch television less they're getting out of the house going to parties they're buying they're shopping they're doing whatever um and so it doesn't make any sense to air original episodes of a popular show in december because not that many people are even watching tv to see them right mm-hmm. so it's very disruptive so if you have a show like the Tina Fey show that you know is a lot of people are going to want to see and that you want to run without interruption you have to start it in January or you have to start it sometime during the winter right mm-hmm. to so, so that you can just keep running it until it runs out either in April or in May or in March depending on how many episodes you make I that's understand. why the following always debuts in January mm-hmm. and runs through uh, until it runs out of episodes, because um, it's the kind of show that you have to track from week to week. Right. People like Kevin Bacon, and they don't want to. They don't want to run the show for a little bit and then have to take a break in December and then get everybody reinterested in it again. So shows that are more complex, shows that they want people to watch from week to week, or shows that they think are highly anticipated that you know, especially a, a cult of fans are going to show up for. They may delay them until January so that they can run them straight through. There's no interruptions. And people, they can build on that audience momentum, particularly if the show's good. And, so and it doesn't have anything to do with them being scared. All right. it, uh, and, and the thing that I see happening that's very interesting is, is it used to be all these shows debut in fall, 
and it was hard to focus on any one. And there was a sense that if you had a really special show, you'd hold it back until January because then it could it could debut by itself, or there maybe be one or two other shows that might debut, and and people could really pay attention to it. But what's happening now is there is so much noise about television out there that the the mass fall debut creates this huge wave of publicity that you don't see for television, for broadcast television, at many other times, right? Mm-hmm. So, so in a way, it helps the shows to be a part of this thing that lands on every magazine cover and that everybody's talking about for a couple of weeks in September in a way that, that broadcast television just doesn't command the attention except for maybe the Super Bowl, right? So, so, so in a weird way, we're seeing that script flip a little bit, and shows that debut in January and February by themselves have a harder time getting attention than shows that are part of this big, massive promotional push in the fall. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out uh, in this coming TV season. Hey, Eric Dickens, I have a million more questions for you about all of that, but uh, I also don't want to run out of time before we get a chance to talk about Larry Wilmore. So maybe we should shift gears over to, to Larry Wilmore for a second, because you and I have talked about this in the past, and as you just said, you write and talk a lot about diversity in television. We've spoken in the past about diversity on, in late-night comedy formats. Um, you know, the, the news over the weekend that Larry Wilmore would take over the time slot of, of the Colbert Report was, I think, really, really interesting news. And this is a guy who we've all come, those of us who watch The Daily Show, really come to enjoy. A very interesting presence, a very interesting persona. It's probably not his real persona. This kind of button-down but crabby uh, commenter on, on race issues who, uh, who who seems on the one hand to have this somewhat, as I say, kind of button-down, cons- sort of you know, personally conservative self-presentation, but then would say really outrageous things or just blurt all kinds of uh, uh, profanities in the middle of his presentations. I love this guy. I love him as a Jon Stewart uh, Daily Show contributor. Um, of course, when you think about hosting a show, I mean, a whole bunch of different skill sets come into play. Uh, but as you pointed out, this guy has a whole bunch of skill sets. He hasn't just been a comedian in his life, right? Yeah, he um, Larry Wilmore has been in TV for quite a while. He um, started as a writer for um, shows like In Living Color and the Jamie Foxx Show, shows that were uh, multicultural or black-focused on Fox back in the 90s, you know, when Fox was using those kind of shows as counter-programming uh, for NBC's Must See uh, Thursdays, which had, you know, Friends and Seinfeld and uh, Frasier, you know, like it was like the whitest night of television. <laughs> so Fox decided to counter-program with, with minority-centered shows, and Larry started uh, writing for them, and then uh, he helped uh, co-create um, an animated series that Eddie Murphy did called The PJs for Fox, and he also helped create um, The Bernie Mac Show, which was a, a two-short um, um, show, comedy series featuring Bernie Mac uh, before he died, the, the legendary African-American stand-up uh, comedian. And then Larry went on uh, to do to try other projects. He's, he's actually done a lot of uh, pilots of shows featuring himself as a star. He did one. Uh, he was developing one where he would play like an Obama-like uh, uh, presidential candidate, and then when Obama got elected, it seemed like that kind of uh, sapped some of the juice out of the concept. And then he also had a, uh, a, a concept where he would play a self-centered um, cable news host, but then, you know, uh, Stephen Colbert kind of sucked the air out of that. And so he's had a lot of different ideas sort of kicking around where he would finally feature himself as a performer. But as you said, he really kind of hit his stride 
on The Daily Show as a correspondent, basically uh, a guest star who would come in and do um, really funny uh, stories about race. And he was, he was able to find new things to say about race uh, at times when things like the Donald Sterling uh, controversy are, are jumping off. And he was also um, able to do it in a way that everybody would find it funny. So it wasn't just people of color laughing at it. It wasn't just white people laughing at it. It, it, it was a way to sort of tell truths about how race works in society in a way uh, that felt even-handed and felt like, uh, you know, no topic uh, was, uh, was, was too risky. You know, he could, he could take on anything. And so now what they're going to do is they're going to use this show as a way to showcase uh, a bunch of comedians of color uh, and people who normally uh, have a hard time being featured on Comedy Central, being featured in the mainstream of, uh, uh, of uh, TV comedy. And, and Larry is going to be the host of that show and sort of oversee it all. And so he has a lot of chops. You know, he's run a lot of network TV shows. He had to quit a job where he was going to be the showrunner uh, for um, a sitcom starring Anthony Anderson on ABC about race. So, you know, he, he, he was ready to take a job where he'd be working behind the scenes, but now he's going to be working behind the scenes and also be the star of the show. And I, I can't wait to see what he comes up with. I, I can't either. I, I think, you know, one of the things that will be interesting in the role that he's been as so-called senior black correspondent. um, He's, you know, it's really all about the material. He comes in, he's got great material. He's very funny. He's got a terrific delivery. He's got a great voice too. There's something about his voice. That's very compelling. In fact, we, we, I couldn't really pull a clip of one of his basic head, head to head things with John Stewart because they are for the most part kind of profanity laced and with a lot of bleeps. But I, I've got, we got a little part of a piece. This is really was kind of a brilliant piece from a few years ago where he and John Oliver together uh, went out to uh, cover uh, a councilman in New York who wanted to make the use of the N-word illegal. Uh, And uh, towards the end, they came back and uh, together they talked to that councilman and and asked him uh, one specific question about, about what would happen if that word became illegal. We put that clip here. What uh, do you say to rappers who need that word in terms of a rhyme scheme? Need the word? I don't think you need the word. I'm not sure about that, Leroy. Finish this phrase. I'm not saying she's a gold digger, but she ain't messing with no broke. Mm. Uh, I'm not saying she's a gold digger, but she's not. She ain't nice. messing with no broke. Fool. Do you understand how rap works, Kanzai? Um, he's, he's just, a, he's a very funny guy, but you know, Eric, one thing that, that, you know, as a TV critic is that, you know, I mean, David Letterman at one point said that one of his big revelations was no piece of comic material was as important as his relationship, uh, with the audience as, as a friend that they want to visit night after night after night. Uh, sure. and so four nights a week, if I assume that's what this is, one of the things Wilmore will probably have to do is figure out what his persona is. Who's the guy we want to have that 1130 day? with well I, you know i don't think he has to figure that out he has been uh, he's done stand-up he's done two um uh specials for showtime where um they were all based around uh comedic takes on um you know race and social issues and gender in america he did one from utah <laughs> you know i mean and uh, i it, so he has an onstage persona it's very much like uh what you've seen him do uh, as as the senior black correspondent on The Daily Show. Um, and, you know, I've interviewed him a few times, and he is pretty much like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's not that different from that persona. It's kind of like uh, what you saw with Stephen Colbert. You know, it, 
people who've met him, you can you you know that the Colbert that you see on TV is just an amped up, more energized, uh, more quippy version of the real guy. And um, and Larry's kind of like that. I think even less so. I think I think I think the the person I think the senior black correspondent that you see on the Daily Show is very close to his actual personality. So I don't think there's going to be a lot of um, he's not going to have to change a lot to to host the show. The question is going to be how do they tackle these topics? Um, are they going to get away from that sort of fake newscast format that has served the Daily Show so well? And that has served the Colbert Report so well, where uh, Colbert is basically doing a parody of uh, a personality-driven cable news show. So, so what's their framework? What's their format? How do they introduce all of these sketches and all of this material uh, in a way that that the you know pulls the audience through what they're uh, doing? I hope they find actually another, a third way of doing it. Uh, because, you know, one of the great disappointments to me is seeing, for example, John Oliver go to HBO. He's brilliant. The the shows he's done have been very funny, but it is essentially the same format as The Daily Show, minus uh, the the in-the-moment interviews that, that, uh, that John Stewart does at the end of every show. Um, I, I would really prefer to see them find a new format and a new way of talking about this stuff that also satirizes media, but adds in race and social issues and, you know, underrepresented communities. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And I've, I have the same sense with the John Oliver vehicle, too, that, you know, it's good, but I feel like I, I've seen it. And it is in all the ways that he's tried to self-deprecatingly deal with. It is sort of, you know, once a week, which is somehow or other less immediate. It doesn't seem to work that well. I do feel as though Wilmore has some of the stuff that he does borders on sketch comedy already, that he could almost take some of the things. There, there was a, I watched a whole bunch of clips uh, before talking to you today. There was a great one where he was talking uh, about Maxine Waters and Charlie, Charlie Rangel, and he, um, he talked about the race card, and he actually produced what looked like a credit card and a swiping machine, and he swiped it, and it didn't work, and there was this kind of noise that came back, uh, and, and he, then he, he looked at the fine print on the card, and, he was, he, and John Stewart was saying, you mean you actually have a race card? He goes, oh, yeah, no, I have a race card. And, and, and the whole thing was hilarious. I mean, it was really, really brilliantly done, and you wouldn't have to push it that far away from Stewart's desk to turn it into maybe a different kind of piece of comedy. See, one thinks maybe Wilmore does have the skills to create something really new yeah i don't i don't think there's any doubt that he has the skill to do it um and the question is just whether or not they're willing to take the risk with this show of telling stories in a way that's um different enough that it may take the audience a little while to catch up to what they're doing because the one thing about what john oliver is doing is that it's pretty much what he did when he guest hosted for john stewart on the daily show so hbo very much knew what they were buying from him and you know when they when they when they brought him into the fold, um, it, it's hard to know what this new show is going to be like. But in a way, that's you know to me the best television, the most innovative television, comes from people taking chances. And uh, you know I remember when uh, Mark Burnett, the um, executive producer of Survivor, was actually going around to affiliate stations across the country trying to sell this concept 
of a survival series where 16 people got dropped into a wilderness somewhere and had to survive while they were being observed by cameras. And everyone thought he was crazy. <laughs> and, and critics thought he was, he was creating a situation where somebody would get killed. And what he wound up doing was creating a reality TV franchise that has survived, you know, 12, 13 years now. So, um, so the question is, you know, are they going to really take a chance and do something different? Uh, or uh, will we wind up uh, seeing a, a thinly veiled reimagining of the same kind of show that we've seen on Colbert Report and The Daily Show. All right, Eric Diggins, uh, we'll find out, and we'll regroup with you as soon as possible. Thanks so much for joining us today. All right, thanks a lot for having me. All right, that's Eric Diggins. He is the one and only uh, NPR TV critic. We're going to take a break. We'll come back with Christine Stewart, Stewart from CT News Junkie, about a new Connecticut poll. So on uh, May 1st uh, through May 6th, uh, the Quinnipiac poll. Actually, before I even introduce this, let me just say that our final talk- topic today is going to be Michael Sam being drafted uh, by the NFL by the St. Louis Rams with the 249th pick. And um, that itself, in some ways, was almost a controversy that kind of never happened. Um, we always managed to find a controversy. We as a society managed to find a controversy somehow in something like this. So now the new controversy is that he kissed on camera his boyfriend at the time that he's being picked. And there are all kinds of people on Twitter who just just couldn't stand to watch that. It was more than they could handle with their delicate sensibilities. So we'll be talking about that in the final segment. Uh, and if you want to call in about that and want to be part of that conversation, have some things that you'd like to add, don't wait too long, all right? I mean, as we go into the next break, uh, get on the line here because sometimes people wait too long to call in and we don't, we don't get to their phone call. So the net number for that is, it's the next segment, but 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Right now, though, we're going to um, uh, talk to Christine Stewart from CT News Show. The reason we're going to talk to her, as I said, from May 1st to May 6th, Quinnipiac polls looked at attitudes of Connecticut voters uh, about things like guns, the death penalty, uh, marijuana, and Keno. Uh, basically kind of a vice poll, I guess. Uh, although I guess there's a whole bunch of Second Amendment people who don't think guns are a vice. But anyway, the um, uh, it was a survey, anyway, of Connecticut voters' attitudes towards those topics. Uh, Christine Stewart, uh, the founder of CT News Junkie, is here with us. Uh, so tell us uh, more about this, Christine. Let's start with, we might as well start with guns. I, I think in some ways some of the headlines here uh, do uh, come in the area of guns. So what did Quinnipiac polls find out about our attitudes towards firearms? Well, I thought this was really interesting that, you know, you have uh, those who support stricter gun control laws in Connecticut, which were, you know, some uh, enhanced last year uh, after the Sandy Hook uh, shooting. Uh, you know, 56% support those, you know, new stricter laws and 38% oppose them. But uh, of those people, uh, if they, you know, if they couldn't vote for a candidate that disagreed with their gun position, um, so 54% actually would not vote for a candidate that didn't support their position on guns. Yeah, and it seems which which you yeah. would think would be the opposite, just because the, the Second Amendment supporters have been you know very vocal uh, you know recently that you would think that their opposition would um, make them opposed to voting for anybody aside from 
that one issue, being a one-issue voter. Yeah, I mean, just to sort of draw an underline uh, beneath that, I, I, I had the same reaction, which is if you told me that a, that a certain percentage of people would not vote for a candidate if that candidate did not share their position about guns, I would just assume, I think I would naturally assume we were talking 100% about people who are supporters of gun rights. I sort of forgot that there's even a constituency that might not vote for a candidate who didn't sufficiently favor gun control or reform of the gun laws with uh, with an eye to restricting access to guns. But but what the poll found out was that larger, that, that latter group, the people who believe in more gun control, less access to guns, um, are more hardened off in their belief and less likely to vote for a candidate who won't deliver on that than the group of people. There, there just aren't as many as the other kind of people, the people who wouldn't vote for a strong Second Amendment supporter, right? Which is really interesting because I think that they haven't been as vocal. I mean, they do have the group and they said that they're forming a super PAC um, to participate in the upcoming election, but I, I don't feel like they've been as vocal online or just as vocal in the electoral process of deciding which candidates move forward in this process. Yeah, and I think there's a deeper lesson to be learned from all this, too, because you and I, we're, we're subject to the same kinds of buffeting all the time on, on newspaper comment threads or uh, CT News Junkie comment threads, and, 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 on, and you, you go to public hearings on gun laws and you see these incredible shows of force by the people who are very concerned about having their guns taken away, uh, and, and we see big rallies on the Capitol lawn. And, you know, I mean, this is the second poll sandwiched around a, a political development that just sort of suggests that this is not as big a group as we tend to think. They make a lot of noise, but we just saw Martha Dean drop out of the governor's race. Now, I personally think she dropped out of the governor's race because she couldn't get any delegates uh, at the convention, but she also, she cited her poor showing uh, in the Quinnipiac poll from last week about this. I had assumed, once again, based on this very anecdotal you know, testing of the waters, that she'd have a lot of support because she is such a strong symbol of gun rights. And I just assumed there were a lot of people who would just automatically flock to her standard because because of that. And it, it, there just aren't, apparently. Yeah, no, there really aren't. I mean, the the one, I guess, pro, you know, really pro-gun guy left is, is Joe Visconti at this point. So, I mean, Foley has said that he wouldn't do anything. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, uh, he wouldn't repeal it, but at the same time, he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't really take on the issue. So, and, and this is, speaking of Governor Malloy, an issue that works pretty well for him now then. It, you know, although it, the approval rating for, for his uh, gun policy uh, isn't, you know, overwhelming, it does seem as though there are people who would not vote for somebody who And you sort of have to, when you think about this and you think about the fact that Tom Foley, the leading contender for the Republican nomination, has never really carved out a rock-solid pro-gun rights position. It's a, always He always seems to make it a little fuzzy. Correct me there if I'm wrong no, about that. No, you're correct about that. I mean, he, he kind of, he walks the line on this one. He doesn't fall hardly down on, on one side or the other. He did attend the gun rally, though, recently um, at the Capitol. Uh, I, I think it's it was like last month, last April. But, I mean, if you know that uh, a hardened-off gun rights policy would cost you a huge segment of the electorate who just couldn't possibly vote for you based on that, then you're not going to have a hardened-off gun rights policy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that he is aware of that, you know, obviously, uh, you know, this poll shows, if this poll is correct, that most people actually support the stricter gun laws. So um, let's look at some of the other things. Uh, medical marijuana, this is uh, the dispensaries are, are pretty much about to go online. What did we learn about medical marijuana and other kinds of marijuana use? 
I, I think that we learned that uh, the younger generation isn't as opposed to marijuana as the older generation. So as the demographics um, begin to change a little bit, uh, support for uh, legalizing marijuana is, is increasingly popular among the youth. Not not a huge surprise. Uh, on no, that not a huge surprise at all. <laughs> um, but it's interesting that it kind of it kind of tracks similar to I think it was Daniela Altamari, the current who pointed out it tracks similar to uh, same sex marriage, right? And, and the youth's opinion of same sex marriage and how it's changed over time. And and you know I mean, but this one thing we did learn from the poll. Although I don't know if we actually learned it, most many of us may have already known it. But if you hear the debate about medical marijuana, if you heard the debate about medical marijuana, you'd think it was much more up for grabs than it really is. Ninety percent of voters approve of medical marijuana. Um, you know, I mean, <laughs> that's that's about that's as close to unanimity as you can get about about almost anything in a poll, which suggests that you know even the limited political debates that we've had about it over the last few sessions were. Uh, they weren't reflective of reality. Well, what's interesting is that, you know, I get more emails from people asking me, who are the doctors who are actually prescribing this medical marijuana? Because I want to go out and I, I want to get some, but I haven't been able to find a doctor who prescribes it. And the Department of Consumer Protection says we can't give you a list of the doctors that are prescribing it. Well, that may be a whole show for us. Yeah, that, <laughs> that could be an entirely new show. Yeah, but yeah, the market the market is clearly there. People want their prescriptions, uh, and and the market will sort itself out. I can pretty well guarantee you if you look at the experience in, in other states where they've done this. Well, we, let's talk about some of the other issues. Christine Stewart from uh, CT News Junkies with us. We'll talk about some of the uh, other issues that sort themselves out a little bit in this poll. These are all issues that could drive votes in certain ways. Although Kino. I mean, I don't think what we learned about Kino really means anything anymore because Kino is supposedly completely off the table as of the end of the last legislative session. But yeah, maybe we find, maybe we find out why it's off the table. It is officially repealed, and so 67 percent of people in this poll said that they opposed it, um, which doesn't, which isn't different than um, previous polls, um, where Quinnipiac has asked this question. I guess you know, in um, oh, let's see, in uh, 2013, it was 59% opposed it, and 2010, 70% opposed Kino. So uh, they actually repealed Kino. They didn't just not fund it. They actually repealed it. And, and uh, I mean, that either means that, I mean, it probably means that they they saw these polls, they saw the previous polls, they saw any internal polls they had and thought, wow, we're just going to lose so much support on this. It's not worth the X million dollars we think we're going to get. I mean, there may be some other really fascinating backstory and all that, but at minimum, it probably means that. Um, we should also talk very briefly about the death penalty, although that's another done deal. I mean, I don't think anybody feels the death penalties in play or in flex in any way, but it, it does indicate an electorate that's slightly out of communion with the, the finished product on the death penalty. And this seems to have been the case, you know, all along. Um, you know, they, they, voters in Connecticut support uh, the death penalty, but they remain divided when you ask them whether they prefer life in prison without parole or the death penalty. So it's like a 47-49 split on life in prison without parole versus the death penalty. But it's, you know, that's uh, within the margin of error. So... And so the, and the, then the last thing we learned about was minimum wage. Uh, also, not a big surprise. It's been clear all along that, and this got said uh, on the wheelhouse uh, uh, a week or two ago, that it's been clear all along that the minimum wage was a winning political issue uh, for Dan Malloy or anybody else who wanted to pursue it. And, and we found that to be the case in the poll, right? 
It definitely is the case. Uh, I'm still looking for someone who makes minimum wage, though. Exactly. That's uh, that's the larger question. But 72% uh, of respondents uh, like the minimum wage increase, uh, 94% of Democrats uh, like the minimum wage increase, and most importantly, 70% of unaffiliated voters, the people that everybody really cares about because yeah. they're the people who have to be wooed. So, you know, I mean, as you look at all this, though, and, and you sort of look at the coming election, really, it's hard, it's hard to see how, with the possible exception of gun laws, it's h- hard to see how any of this comes into play and 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 determines how the election is going to come out, right? I mean, the election is going to probably be based on other stuff because most of this stuff is settled law now. Yeah, I feel like um, it, it, I was actually kind of curious as to why Quinnipiac asked them this stuff because I feel like the marijuana thing has been settled, uh, the Kino thing has been settled, uh, the death penalty has been settled. Um, you know, they've all been settled within the you know the past four years, but they seem to be done public policy measures the Connecticut um, legislature has taken. So uh, who knows, uh, you know, the the gun laws could impact the election. I mean, we are talking about a small segment of the population, but that small segment of the population, the last election was within 6,404 votes. So they could determine who the governor is. All right. Christine Stewart, always great to talk to you. Christine Stewart, see her work at CT News Junkie. No browser is complete without it. We are going to come back. We are going to talk about the story of Michael Sam, not just his drafting, but then the other thing that got everybody all upset. seems unfair that Michael Sam gets criticized for one kiss, but nobody says anything about the players holding hands with their parole officers. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Greg Hill appeared in our intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Patricia Arquette. For show pages, articles, and clips from the Faith Middleton Show staff's fall TV pilot, The Adventures of Pantless Pelican Paul, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, The Art of Navigation, when satellites are taking over for maps. And now, back to Colin. All right. So uh, we're going to have to speed through this last segment here, but uh, I think we can talk about most of what we need to talk about. Uh, You want to talk about a numerical disparity? The uh, second most popular NFL football jersey emblazoned with the name of one of this weekend's draft choices uh, contains the name of the player who was picked 249th. Um, And the reason for that, of course, is that player is Michael Sam. Uh, He's been uh, picked by the St. Louis Rams. One of the journalists who's really been covering this from the get-go, Sid Ziegler, joins us. He's the co-founder of Out sports.com from which I think I lifted that particular nugget of information I just shared with you. Sid Ziegler, thank you so much for joining us. It, it, that's pretty crazy statistic, right? I mean, the 249th pick is the second best-selling jersey and, and in 48 hours less time. Did you order yours yet? You know, I have not. I'm, <laughs> I, I, I just it, It's been the craziest couple of days. Yeah. I just haven't had time. I'm getting uh, a, actually a Packers jersey that says Clinton Dix, but that's my own. Uh. <laughs> so um, this is really interesting in a couple of different ways. And obviously, I mean, very quickly, uh, Michael Sam, people weren't 100 percent sure that uh, this uh, openly gay, completely out uh, star college football player was going to be drafted, partly because, you know, some unnamed general managers were talking about how it might be a problem and partly because he he's kind of a bubble player in certain ways. Right. Well, I don't know. We'll find out that the draft is an art, not a science. And, and the SEC Defensive Player of the Year went in the seventh round, but 
guys from random colleges you've never heard of who are supposed to go undrafted went in the fifth round. And, and every single draftee, uh, even, even the number one draft pick, Jadavian Clowney, I'm sure, thinks that he should have been drafted higher. So <laughs> that's, that's, right. just, that's just the way it goes. He should have been drafted in negative numbers. All right, so, um, but, you know, not, there's not only the question now of will he make the team, uh, but also this kind of unexpected little wave of controversy happened. Uh, not unusually, he was there with his significant other waiting for the phone call, and then when the phone call came, uh, he had a celebratory kiss with his significant other. Of course, he's gay, so his significant other is a man. This was caught on camera, and immediately in the Twitterverse, uh, various people living in God knows what historical era were having huge problems with this, right? Yeah, and, and, and to an extent I understand it because this is the first time that a lot of people saw two men kiss. Hollywood has protected the American public from these images for a long, long time. Even a modern family, they, they, the, the gay couple in that show, did, <clears throat> didn't kiss for a couple of seasons. So, uh, you know, I understand why people were uh, surprised or shocked, why they were upset. That, that, that's really where the disappointment comes, because at some point people have to accept that gay people are real, and, and, and we need to stop living in some fantasy world where being gay can be changed or, or that it's some kind of a choice that people are making. They can <laughs> come in and out of gay relationships and straight relationships. So... I know I would. It was it was shocking. People didn't want their children to see it. But at the end of the day, their children saw what's real, and what's real is a gay football player kissing his boyfriend. And there's just no getting around it. Yeah, and I don't know. I, in some ways, I think you're being. Uh, I mean, I think this says a lot also about the insulation of the sports fan from the rest of culture. The truth is, if you watch television, if you go to movies these days, you see plenty of men kissing. And this isn't even all that new. I don't know when the first male on male kiss on primetime television was, but it wasn't last year, and it wasn't five years ago. It was probably at least 10 years ago, if not more. It's just that football fans, sports fans who don't consume a lot of other culture, they just have a lot of catching up to do. Uh, if you want to respond to that in about 20 seconds, that's all we've got, Sid. Yeah, I just disagree. I think football fans are, are Americans, and they watch TV, and, and they watch movies just like everybody else, and we've protected people from, 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 from two men kissing. We'll show two women, but not two men, and I, you know, I'm, I'm glad that those people can no longer say they've never seen two men kiss. <laughs> All right. Yes. Who knows what comes next? Sid Ziegler, thank you so much for joining us, uh, one of the founders of OutSports. Uh, we have to say goodbye right now. And thanks, to, again, to Bitsy Kaplan and Kion Wolf for making it all happen. We'll be back tomorrow with a very interesting show about navigation and maps. I'm Kyone Wolf. Imagine if we legalized recreational marijuana in Connecticut. Our new state motto could be, did you ever notice chocolate cake? It's like a deep dish chocolate pizza, but made out of cake, man.